Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Excess Energy Drinks and Excess Sports Nutrition, exclusively from Amway. Excess offers a collection of active and adventure products to help you energize, hydrate, strengthen, and recover. Follow us on Instagram at Excess Nation. It's inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports, the college football podcast that gives fans the inside scoop on who's moving up, who's moving down, and what's happening with all the big news of the week. Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg will take you through this week's poll, interview coaches, and break down the sport like nobody else, starting now. Welcome back to another edition of the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast presented by USA Today Sports. I am Dan Wolken. Paul Meyerberg is here. Later in today's show, we're going to be joined by Oregon coach Mario Cristobal. They just started practice out in the Pac-12 a couple days ago. And Mario Cristobal, really interesting story, the way he came up. Coach of Florida International, got fired there, went to Alabama. All of a sudden, he finds himself at Oregon, and he's a – Pac-12 champion who's got a team that uh, could be a potential college football playoff contender. So we'll talk to him. But in the meantime, Paul Meyerberg, we have another Amway Coaches Poll. And I'll tell you what, no surprises. Clemson number one, Alabama number two, Georgia number three, Notre Dame at number four. Impressive win over Florida State last night. But I want to start the conversation today around a couple of teams who are not in the top 25 and that is Oklahoma and Texas in a red river shootout to remember maybe for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, this, um, this was a terrible game. I feel like it aged me a year and I wasn't even really even invested in it, but like missed kicks, blocked kicks, uh, interceptions, bad play calls, bad play call, weird coaching decisions. I mean, like there was nothing at stake and they played like it. I mean, just in terms of what, like how each team performed when given the opportunity to pull away or, or win this game and, and handed opportunities right back. We're, we're clearly looking at, at two teams that are like in the 15 to 25 range of the, of the poll um, just based on what we've seen through four games. So it was a slap fight between two pretty average teams as of right now. Oklahoma gets the win 53 to 45 Four overtimes, they really should have won it in regulation. I, you look at the way this game played out. Oklahoma, they had a 31-17 lead going into the fourth quarter, midway through the fourth quarter. It did not seem like Texas was really doing anything. And then all of a sudden, Oklahoma just, once again, they can't tackle. They aren't getting first downs with their offense. They, they can't put the game away. Uh, Lincoln Riley, I thought, got a little too cute on third down a couple times. And then Texas, Sam Ellinger, the door was cracked open. He gets it to overtime. You get to you get to a third overtime where all Oklahoma's got to do is make a field goal. They, they'd stop Texas. 
they miss a, a kind of a chip shot. It goes to a fourth overtime. And how about Drake Stoops mm-hmm. ends up catching the winning touchdown? I mean, the game had a little bit of everything. But um, if you're Oklahoma, the season, in terms of what you wanted to accomplish, it's just not going to turn out this way. I, I, and this is the first time I felt like fans are, are kind of, I don't want to say fed up. Fed up would not be accurate, but they're a little annoyed with Lincoln Riley right now. I think they're fed up with like two things. One is the inconsistency and just the overall inability to like, create a reliable defense. And I get that. I mean, it's getting ridiculous. It's been years. And I think they're sick of, as we discussed earlier in the season, just the random losses, like the ugly loss to a Kansas state or an Iowa state. They're sick of those things. Um, beating Texas, like in a, in a other, in one sense is a, palate cleanser. It, it kind of brings things back to normal, but I don't think the way they played, even if the defense was a little bit better than it's been, I don't think the way they played really makes people feel good about this season. And like you, you said that uh, what they want to achieve is still is, is not really, it's not even mathematically possible really at two and two at this point, but they could still win this conference. Um, I just don't know how they do. Like, I, I just don't know. They're down tiebreakers already to two unbeaten teams. You're not seeing the sort of improvement from Rattler. Um, yet. So yeah, there's not a huge amount of reason for optimism from OU. And then again, it could be worse. You could be Texas. Well, I just don't understand why they can't close games. I mean, they're getting outscored in the fourth quarter. I think it's 41 to 10 in the last three, three weeks. I, I don't understand how that's possible. Well, look like you're, you're up 31, 17 and you have the ball. I think there's probably about five minutes left when they take over the, for the second to last time. OU, and it's three and out. They're like minus four, minus five yards. Ends up fourth and fifteen, um, whatever it is. Um, Texas goes down and scores in in a minute and change. You get the ball back. It's three plays and a punt. You barely gain any yardage. Texas scores with fourteen seconds left. It's like the mentality of the program, not just like of this offense, and the mentality of the program changes in the fourth quarter when things get tight. You think that OU had been through enough as a coaching staff and specific players to not fold into a ball and play it so safe when they have a little bit of a lead or the game seems in doubt. Um, but that's what you've seen. I think that's why in the fourth quarter um, they're getting dominated because they're changing their mentality um, when they need to hold a lead or, or, you know, kind of preserve a close game. Meanwhile, as for Texas, uh, I can only say this. You go on those Texas message boards right now, they are talking about Tom Herman. They're also talking about Urban Meyer. They want Urban uh, Meyer, and we're going to do this again just all year long. Um, Urban Meyer's not going to be the next Texas coach, is he? No, no, I would not. I, I, I would hesitate to think that that's remotely feasible. Um, yeah, Tom Herman has not uh, ingratiated himself with the locals, but that's been a long-running story, and this is not helping matters for him. Um, I would aim for Urban Meyer, sure. I mean, why not just go for Nick Saban? They, they tried last time. Just go right for Nick Saban um, if you're Texas, and and let's go for the let's go for it all. Well, uh, I, look, I think Saban uh, is probably staying put at Alabama. You got to ask. You got to make him say no. Um, but fire Herman first. Make sure you do that, and then go after Saban. Um, don't cover your bases at all. If I'm Texas, in all <laughs> seriousness, like it's a it's an awful situation for Herman. Um, you're two and two. You're one and two in the conference. You lost another game to OU. Um, 
I don't know. I know it's 2020 and it's a weird season and it's going to be a weird off season and, and finances are, are going to be an issue for every single athletic department. Um, in a normal year, obviously Tom Herman is, is a major story this week. Yeah, he's, yeah, it's, he's a major story. So I don't know. Like, I don't know what you think. Like you've written before that this could be a weird, like this sort of static non-changing environment after the season. I assume that you still think that's the case. Yeah. Cause but, it's not I mean, just, it's not just the money that you've got to pay Tom Herman. It's the money that you've committed to his assistant coaches. It's the money you've got to come up with to hire somebody else. But look, if there's one person who's got uh, billions of dollars who will, will write the check, then maybe that equation changes, but it's a bad look for Texas in some ways who just finished like laying off a bunch of people. That, that's a great the, point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Tom Herman, let, let's put it this way. It's never a good time to have a bad year, but this is about as good a time as any. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see how the season develops. Maybe there's something they can salvage from this. All right, let's, let's run back to the top of the polls. I, I want to talk about red river just because it was the game of the day. Um, Clemson number one, they took care of Miami 42 to 17. There was obviously a lot of Miami buzz the last few weeks, but I think we've seen Miami's schedule to start the season. They put up big numbers against some pretty, pretty soft competition, UAB Louisville, who's not any good and, and Florida state. So now we have a better sense of where Miami is. And the truth is they, they just didn't get a lot done in this game. They had 210 yards of offense. Derek King looked overwhelmed for, for most of the night. Uh, Clemson was able to, to really stretch it out in the second half. Uh, it was 21 to 10 at halftime only because Dabo made a bonehead decision to kick a 61 yard field goal. Miami yeah. blocks it. We got to talk about that. Okay. Like let's, let's talk about Clemson overall, but you got to talk about this move. Like, Dallas Sweeney is, is a, is a hall of fame football coach. Uh, he's won national championships. He's going to win more. That to me was like one of the dumbest things I've ever seen him do. Well, he said, um, that. he said, as yeah, much. immediately, like right at that halftime interview as he was coming off the field, he was like, that was idiotic. Like you can laugh about it now, but that was like the, um, Jameis Winston falling down at the Rose bowl meme. Like that was that bad a decision, um, in terms of like, coming out of nowhere out of character. So it was fine in the long run, but I, I don't, I don't know what he was thinking at all in that situation. Well, I think they just got a little bit arrogant. You know, you're up 21 to three. You feel like you should be up more because you've kind of dominated the game. And so you just think we'll, we'll try to steal three points here, even though the percentages don't favor it and you don't really need it. Uh, But you're probably a little bit mad because you're not up by more. Like, yeah. I, I think that was kind of where they're coming from. We, we should be up by more and, and, and it just backfired, but yeah. you know. well, they should have been, they, I mean, they, they, it was 14, nothing when Ladson drops an easy touchdown pass. If it's 21, nothing at that point, they look, they end up winning by 25, but maybe they win, you know, 56 to 10 or something. Um, thoroughly dominant by Clemson. The striking thing, when you compare Clemson to Miami, I think we can agree that Miami is a top 25 team. They're not a top 10 team. Uh, Clemson is faster. Um, and mentally they're ahead of the game with Miami. I mean, they knew what Miami was doing pretty much at all times. So they were out coached Miami and obviously they, they don't have the talent to match up with Clemson. Number two, Alabama had to go to Oxford, Mississippi. Um, this was probably the second most entertaining game of the day. And as you watched it unfold, 
Alabama ends up winning 63-48. It was essentially like a tennis match where one break of serve was going to determine the set. And it was almost shocking. Ole Miss's ability to do kind of whatever they wanted on offense. They had 647 yards. Um, they had Alabama on their heels. They, you know, Lane, Lane Kiffin, and I know that Lane Kiffin's not calling all the plays or I don't know how the play calling distribution is between him and Jeff Levy, but Lane's obviously heavily involved in the offense. Uh, they were just bullying the Alabama defense all night long. And, and look, Alabama's Alabama, and they have incredible amounts of offensive talent. They had 700 yards themselves, and they were able to get it done. Does that raise concerns for you about Alabama's defense, watching them just get kind of just pushed around by Ole Miss? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And you can't, you can't sugarcoat it. Look, it was 49-42, Ole Miss driving deep in Alabama territory. Then they have that botch snap. They got to kick a field goal, and they, and they lose ground. So that's where the game was decided. I mean, even at that point, halfway through the, the fourth, I mean, like you said, it was just back and forth. The volley, just that, that wasn't stopping. Um, if you want to be optimistic, this is not the first time in like the very recent past that Ole Miss and Alabama have had a shootout early and Alabama still recovered to, to do what they had to do the rest of the way. Um, Lane Kiffin, obviously I, you know, I give him a lot of, you know, credit, almost full credit for planning schematics, you know, evaluation, sure. setting things up in advance. So I, I call it Lane Kiffin's offense. He, uh, hasn't given people fits all season so far. This is not going to stop. It's only going to get better. I think they're going to do this to a lot of teams the rest of the way. Um, but yes, we spoke about Alabama after A&M, how that kind of fits what Alabama defensively is suited to do. Ole Miss is not. Um, so if you give up 48 to Ole Miss, as good as they are and as, as well coached and speedy they are, yeah, it raises concerns about the teams that you would have to face to win the national title. You know, It worries me if you have to face a Clemson or Ohio State um, what that means. Um, they have time to address it, but um, yeah, you can't help but be concerned. I think even an Alabama supporter at this point would have serious worries about the health of the defense. Ole Miss was nine for 17 on third down, but they also went for it on fourth down quite a bit and they were four for four converting wow. fourth downs. So a lot of missed tackles. Saban's wearing the mask, so you can't exactly see what he's saying, okay. but um, I can only imagine there were some very... So here's <laughs> For sure. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just, I was looking at the box score. I didn't know this when I, when we watched last night, Alabama had 37 first downs. Okay. They were six of seven on third down. Yeah. They never even got to third down. They were, yeah, that's, that is insane. So they ran 71 plays. Seven of them happened on third down and they converted six of them. That's wild. That's absolutely wild. Yeah. That was a fun game, but um, it's not what Nick Saban wants football to be. We know that. All right, so number three, Georgia, and we'll talk about Alabama-Georgia playing next week in our uh, final segment looking ahead. But Georgia tunes up for that game by beating Tennessee 44-21. It was a shaky start for, for Georgia on the first series. The second play, the snap sails over the head of, of Stetson Bennett, and, and Tennessee recovers it in the end zone. So, so they get a kind of a cheap touchdown right out of the gates. And uh, at halftime, Tennessee was was right there. They were up 21-17, and Georgia just got stuffed on the goal line going into halftime. And so you're thinking, hey, maybe Tennessee's got a shot here to, to pull an upset. But in the third quarter, it was just lockdown mode, and uh, 
Georgia just smothered them, just absolutely smothered them. And and you look at the final stats of the game, uh, Tennessee only had 214 yards of offense, minus one rushing on 27 attempts. Obviously, that includes sacks. They turned it over three times. Georgia really flexed its muscles defensively. And and the 44-21 final score, you know, while in some ways it doesn't indicate how hard it was for, for Georgia, in other ways, it actually could have been a lot worse. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Like um, it's at once um, a score that is a little bit misleading because Tennessee had shots and also it doesn't really tell a story of how Georgia really dominated the second half. Um, if they could bottle that second half and, and roll it out every week, I think Georgia is going to be hard to beat. Um, you know, I, they're a complete football team when they play like that. Um, they could run the ball a little bit better. I still, well, let me ask you, We've talked about Stetson Bennett so many times, and I think last week or the week before, we said, oh, JT Daniels needs to get put in because he's the guy who could help them win a national championship. Um, I thought he played pretty well on Saturday, Bennett, and not perfect and, you know, coddled, coddled still to a degree in the offense. But has the way he's played, and specifically yesterday, it changed your perception of that? Do you think they can roll with Bennett keep going forward? Well, I just think that's what they're going to do, and that's what they're going to have to do because they're just not going to have the opportunity, at least in in the near term, to do anything different. And I I do think Kirby Smart is big on just kind of the team dynamics. And if the team believes in Stetson Bennett, then that matters to Kirby. So um, regardless of whether we think JT Daniels is more talented or has got – a better future or gives them a better ceiling, they're going to run with Bennett as long as it's working. So that's just kind of the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, let's continue on down the pole. Uh, we mentioned Notre Dame number four. They beat Florida State. In, an, in any other year, we might actually talk about that game. I don't think we really need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, number five, Ohio State, not going to – play for uh, a little while longer, <laughs> got to wait on, on those guys. But how about number six, North Carolina? And we've had Mac Brown on the podcast earlier this season. Um, so many people, when that hire was made, thought it was a joke. They thought it was a bad fit, that, that Mac was basically just going to be cruising into retirement, taking that job. And here he is. He's got North Carolina number six in the country. Now, I don't know how good they are. I don't know that that's really an accurate reflection of where they sit nationally, but they did beat Virginia Tech 56-45. Virginia Tech's had all kinds of issues with COVID and contact tracing, and they're, I, I, I don't really think it's fair to say too much about Virginia Tech because they just have not been able to shake this, this, this roster issue, but – North Carolina rolls on, and they, they do seem to be getting better in, in some ways uh, every week. And, and you look at their schedule, I mean, they, they've got a really, really clear path until November 27th when they play Notre Dame. Yeah, um, North Carolina for like 18 minutes of time is as good as anybody, I think, like for those 18 minutes. There's also like a third quarter against Virginia Tech where they just get just bullied and they give up 23 points and almost blow the game. It was down – it was 35-14 at the half and then 42-37 going into the fourth. Um, yeah, so they're a good football team, no doubt about it. I just, I'm, looking at, I'm looking like at them at number six and – It's a little and disorienting. Really yeah. yeah, it's weird. But, again, like who else are you going to put there? 
I mean, you should put Penn State there, but I understand, I guess, why people are not. They haven't played a game yet. But uh, or you should put Oregon there, and because you know they're also really good. But I guess in this environment, North Carolina is number six. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But yeah, they've been playing well in spurts, but they've also been playing like trash in spurts. Okay, continue on with the poll. Oklahoma State seven. They were off this week. Penn State eight. Florida nine. Florida hangs in the top ten despite a, a pretty disappointing loss, in my opinion. 41-38 at AM. The game was tied at 38. Florida had the ball. They fumble. AM marches it down and gets in field goal range uh, to, to win the game. And when you look at Florida, they are scoring on a high, high percentage of their possessions, but their defense just isn't good enough. And, you know, Kellen Mond, uh, who we talked about last week, is kind of having a ceiling. 25 out of 35, 338 yards, three TDs. He, he was really, really good. And that's the first signature win for Jimbo Fisher at AM. I don't know that that totally changes the narrative for me, but I do think it, it puts in context Florida that they just don't have a good enough defense right now to, to win at the highest level. And Todd Grantham's got to bear a lot of the responsibility for that. Oh, uh, yeah, Todd Grantham. Uh, look, like Arden Florida Grantham. on a per drive. Yeah, on a, on a per drive basis, their defense is one of the worst in the country. Uh, certainly, one of the worst in the top twenty-five. On a per drive basis, it's actually worse than Oklahoma's. Um, so, wow. that should tell you something. It's 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 crap. Um, I will say this: Florida's two and one. Texas A and M is two and one. Florida's nine. Texas A and M is eleven. I don't like want to get into individual polls, but in a general sense, um, Texas A and M should be ranked higher than Florida. That's like a very small pet peeve. They have the same similar record. They just played AM beat Florida. I don't know why Florida would be ranked ahead of Texas AM on, on any poll. I, I agree with you, but in theory, if they played again next week on a neutral field, who would you pick? It depends. Um, will Dan Mullen be able to get 88,000 people in the stands like he <laughs> wants to in the swamp? What is he talking about? Seriously? He was so amazed at the at the turnout in college station that I think he just wants that. He realizes that, Hey, it's actually a benefit to have fans in the stands. Like it, it's called a home field advantage. So as a football coach, that's what he wants. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen, but I can see where he's coming from. <laughs> All right. So Cincinnati's number 10, as we mentioned, A&M number 11, Miami slips down to 12 from number seven. BYU is Number 13, they're 4-0. They eked out a win over Texas San Antonio. Uh, they have quietly put together a nice season. And then we get to Auburn. Auburn at number 14. Auburn at number 14. Auburn at number 14. Um, Paul, I am going to just put it out there. Auburn should have lost to Arkansas. If the officials on the field did their job, they would have lost to Arkansas. Uh, I'm sure that most of the listeners to this podcast know exactly what we're talking about, but we'll just lay it out quickly. Auburn was down 28 to 27 to Arkansas. They had the ball. They're in field goal range. They're trying to manage the clock. They get it up to the line on third down and they're going to spike it and they're going to go kick a field goal. What happens? Bo Nix, the quarterback muffs the snap, picks it up, tries to spike it. Problem is he spikes it backwards, which means it's not an incomplete pass. It's actually a lateral, which means it's a live ball, which means that anyone could have recovered it, which means that, frankly, the game should have been over, but the referees blew the whistle, and then it goes to replay, and then the SEC's got to put out a statement because 
They said it was an intentional grounding, which it really wasn't. How ticked off do Arkansas fans have a right to be over the fact that Auburn got a shot to kick that field goal and then win the game 20, uh, 30 to 28? Yeah, well, here's the thing, right? Like you, you say from a 10,000 feet, well, Arkansas, they, they had lost 20 in a row and they had just beaten Mississippi State. And, and look, they played Auburn tight. It's a nice, like, they should feel good about themselves. No, that's, that's, that, that's not right. That's inaccurate. Arkansas deserved to have that game, at least in a position where um, the, the field goal would have been farther, I think, because if it's a fumble, then you have to at least take into account the spot of the ball. Um, I think Arkansas as a program and as a team still looks at this as a missed opportunity in terms of being able to really validate the growth under Pittman and moving forward and maybe even win four, maybe five games during the season. Um, if they go right now onto a losing streak because things don't bounce their way again, you look back and you think, oh, maybe if they had won this game, it changes the complexion of the season, changes the complexion of recruiting. You know, I, I think it. I think the whole thing is is deeply important to Arkansas. So to ignore that and just say, oh, they played well, that's that's ridiculous. Um, the bigger issue um, in terms of officiating is that there is a reason why officials have swallowed whistles on close plays and then had to reverse fumbles rather than kind of calling them dead and realizing after the fact that they were fumbles. Um, the issue here was that they immediately blew it dead, um, didn't follow through and let the play kind of play out and follow the, the path of the football. And after doing that, there's really no way they can go back on it. Um, terrible play, terrible call, everything from top to bottom. Um, I just feel like if they had been a little less willing to – blow it dead immediately. I mean, things could have played out in Arkansas's favor, which is how it should have done in the first place. Yeah, I agree. I think it's fairly clear cut, um, but Auburn wins. I mean, what, we, we all know what we saw. And I think what we saw is that Auburn is not the 14th best team in the country, but they're two and one. And they seem to be pretty lucky at this point in the season uh, but there's nothing about Auburn that's particularly impressed me up up until now. Uh, Wisconsin, number 15, Oregon, 16, Tennessee slips to 17, SMU up to 18 from 21, Michigan, 19. Iowa State up to number 20. Uh, they've been good, as has Kansas State, who is number 22. I think when those two teams play, that will sort of sort out some things in the top of the Big 12. Kansas State got a very nice win uh, at TCU. 21-14. Uh, Virginia Tech, number 23. USC and number 24. Minnesota, number 25. They have not played yet this year. Uh, wanted to mention one other game involving teams outside the top 25. That is Kentucky beating Mississippi State 24-2. First time ever a Mike Leach coach team has not had any points from its offense. First time ever. Yeah. Um, I've always believed very strongly that it's better to be shut out than to score just two points. Um, scoring two points really, really puts a bow on it. Um, they threw six interceptions. They averaged like 3.9 yards per attempt. Um, so uh, this, the pirate ship has taken on water in a, in a significant way since LSU turns out LSU sucks. So it doesn't really do anything for Mississippi state to win that game. They've been terrible the last two weeks. Mike Leach is talking about uh, the guys who aren't carrying their weight. They need to be ditched and get his guys in there. So everything is going great in Starkville. After ruling the world two weeks ago, they're they're in the bottom half of the SEC. 
they threw six interceptions among two different quarterbacks, but six interceptions. Yeah, it's impressive. Um, that, that rarely happens in college football. Um, there are a lot of bad quarterbacks, but six interceptions is something special. Um, the it, passing offense was supposed to – was like you thought week one that it would take everybody by storm and that like, oh, it's going to be a bear to prepare for. It, it didn't look that difficult. Kentucky made it look actually really easy. Um, you know, and I'm not saying there's a blueprint, but they made it look very, very easy. I mean, Kentucky – if you were to go into this game and say Kentucky's going to run the ball – 32 times for 84 yards. What would you have said about the final score? Well, I would have picked them to lose for sure. I mean, no, no question. Kentucky needs to run the ball well to win these games. Um, 32 times for 84 yards and they win by three touchdowns. Win by, by 22 points. Yeah. 24, two is a really cool score. Um, it accurately reflects how bad Mississippi state was. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is to Leach coming off that. Um, but this is basically the same script as Washington State. I mean, there's just going to be times where it's 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 like that, and it'll be interesting to see how, how those folks handle it. Uh, you mentioned LSU, and and this will be the last game we talk about. They go to Missouri, and you know, for all the problems that we know LSU has, you don't expect them to lose to Missouri, but. How about Eli Drinkwitz, 45-41, the Missouri Tigers getting the job done. LSU's defense absolutely sucks. They're terrible. You see former players all over Twitter calling them out. Bo Pelini getting paid $2.3 million a year to give up 586 yards to Missouri. Woo! Yeah, and he gave up 626 through the air. To, well, not he, but LSU gave up 626 in the air against Mississippi State. Um it's, it's just impossible to imagine things going worse for LSU. It, I really can't. I really can't picture it. And, and there, were a, there was a certain percentage of people who, like, I wouldn't say called this, but kind of predicted a rough season, like six and four. Um, you know, at best seven and three, there was just too many losses. It's going to be worse than that because they're one and two. They've lost to Missouri, lost Mississippi State. They've got Florida coming up. They still have Auburn, Alabama, A&M. I mean, shoot, they've got Arkansas still. They could lose five more games. Um, so this is bad. This is quite bad. The name you're starting to hear is Gene Chizik, not because he's going to be the next LSU coach, but because that's what people are comparing Ed Orgeron and LSU to, which is Gene Chizik winning the national title with Cam Newton in 2010. It's this dream season, and everyone kind of knows it's a one-off, but it just – goes absolutely haywire in a very short span of time. Chiswick was eight and five the following year. And then just the bottom fell out two years after winning a national championship, he's fired. I don't know that that's the trajectory we're mm-hmm. going to be on at LSU, but that is certainly, it is, it has gotten on the menu at this point. Yeah. And, and uh, Orgeron deserved a lot of credit for, and has deserved throughout almost for the way he's played against top ranked teams. Um, his hiring in the past has been very good at assistant. Um, this is going to be his hardest coaching job. So just moving forward, th- this could be, without exaggeration, this could be a six loss team. And I think that would be on the heels of 15 and 0, just um, really stunning and would really exhaust all the goodwill that, that Orgeron and, and a bunch of guys developed in the last two years. There's a reason why this is very hard to, to maintain at the highest level and why, 
people like Saban and Sweeney, Bob Stoops. It's just maybe a little underappreciated what you have to do to, to year after year after year after year field teams that, that can compete at the top of the sport. All right, so that is our wrap-up for the week. Let's talk now to Oregon coach Mario Cristobal. Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. You can't teach speed, so fuel faster with excess protein pods, the next evolution of protein powder. Excess protein pods help build lean muscle with 20 grams of high-quality whey protein isolate and 4.4 grams of branched-chain amino acids packed into dissolvable food-grade film. With 90 calories, this sugar-free and keto-friendly formula contains no artificial sweeteners, flavors, colors, or preservatives. Drop, shake, fuel. Excess protein pods will help you get after it. Follow us on Instagram at XSNation to experience more. And stay tuned after the podcast to learn why you should be taking protein and how to make it easier with fitness influencer and world traveler, Nicole Lewis. Now, back to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll with Dan Wolken and Paul Meyerberg. And joining the Inside the Amway Coaches Poll podcast today is the coach of the defending Pac-12 champion, Oregon Ducks, Mario Cristobal. Thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate having you. I appreciate you guys having me. Honor and a pleasure to be here. So you guys just started practice uh, up in Oregon. This has been obviously a crazy offseason. In addition to COVID, you guys had the fires up there that that you had to deal with. Uh, Does it finally feel to your team that there's a sense of normal going on right now, finally, as we get into October? That's an awesome question. It does. It does. And everybody wondered what it would feel like the first time we would set foot on the practice field. The game changer was the daily testing, you know, because uh, we were even wondering, how's this thing going to work out? How are we going to, I mean, we're going to transition to legitimate just contact, you know, just going from, from zero to a hundred like that. And, um, you know, once we got everybody tested, it took about an hour, maybe less. Didn't really disrupt the day much because you just switch sides while one tests and gets the rest, the other side meets. We went out to practice and it was, it was full tilt. It was, Obviously, we're a little bit rusty, but in terms of effort, in terms of athletic ability and being in good physical condition, was really impressed and um, and impressed with the fact that everyone acknowledged we got to get better. But yeah, it was it was awesome. It felt great and felt normal. Yeah, I think the the like national picture of the Pac-12 was, oh, they've been taking like two months off. They were at the beach, you know, and having a like having a soda and just chilling out. Um so obviously that shoots a hole in that idea. Did you hear those, that kind of chatter about the Pac-12, that they're off in their own world, not able to practice? And in that case, were you surprised that that was, at least for your team, so inaccurate a statement? You know, I don't, I don't know um, how much chatter I'm in tune with, only because upon arrival a couple of years ago, we felt that it was really important to establish an identity uh, of physicality of developing the trenches, being able to change things up front, because we all know, especially this season, more than ever, more than ever, these games are going to be played in a way that's going to test you, where it's going to be, um, it's going to be more difficult to handle the football sometimes due to rain, you know, high winds, whatever it may be. And so that having been the focal point, that's, I guess our focus, we're so almost obsessed with developing that side along with the explosiveness that surrounds that, 
that we don't get caught up much in the chatter, but our strength and conditioning department is awesome. They, uh, they've really, they've infused that type of DNA in our guys about how this, it, we don't work out, we train, you know, at, at my age, I work out to try to stay and prevent issues, but football's about training and that's a way of life. And, you know, you always hear that quote, you know, you guys are about that life. There's, there is no other way. You really don't have a choice. And I feel like the vast majority of our team really kept themselves not only in good condition, but in, in excellent condition. So we've been able to go uh, the numbers on those GPS systems, you know, back in the day, this was the GPS system was coach Jimmy Johnson's eyes. He'd see how we were running and keep us going or stop us. Uh, mostly kept going by the way, but you know, now <laughs> GPS systems that really calculate how they're moving, what type of high speed quality running are they accomplishing? You know, the accelerations, decelerations, and we're hitting numbers now in week one that we would typically hit in week two and week three and, uh, and holding and maintaining um, our health level. Soft tissue uh, issues have been non-existent in our first few days of camp. So we're pretty fired up. Mario, you mentioned building an identity of the way you wanted to play. Uh, certainly watching you guys the last couple of years, you've made a lot of strides in that. Last year, you were probably just one game away maybe from making the, the college football playoff. How pleased are you just where you have the program in a fairly short period of time? Well, the part that we're pleased about is that uh, there's validation. Like our systems, our teaching progression, our development, the type of recruiting, level of recruiting that we've been able to uh, attain here has been has made a difference and it's made a difference quickly. I mean, people... I think sometimes forget Oregon was just doing awesome for so long. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, hit a rough patch. And, and it's not a knock on anybody because for years, there have been awesome coaches here, great coaches, great accomplishments. But we had to get back on track. And um, it wasn't about trying to copy anybody else or do anything that had been done before or not been done before. We just felt that we had to get away from maybe um, – some of the flashy stuff, we had to get down to basics, you know, fundamentals, technique, toughness, physicality, finish, um, intelligence, you know, discipline and all that stuff. And it's it's now it's it's really part of the moral fiber, the principles and values that we have. Here. And there, a lot of guys are taking pride in that. So that, that's been critical. Please contend. That's never going to happen. You know that. I mean, you kind of know a little bit how I was raised and the guy that I had a chance to play for and work with. Can't ever get there, you know, and uh, may he rest in peace. Dick Tomey, who was a tremendous mentor, used to always say that your goals have to, they've got to be borderline unreachable so that you're always reaching, so you're always striving and pushing for it. And uh, our guys are really motivated by that. Uh, on the flip side, you get that close to a playoff. I'm curious um, if you carry it with you into the offseason and how long it takes you to kind of forget that, hey, I was one game away and how hard it is just to get to that point. Well, you know, it's um, great teaching moments, right? And all the stuff that comes with it because, you know, we are, we're very close, but we also can never forget the games that we won, how difficult it was to win those games, particularly on the road. You know, for, for two years prior, I think uh, Oregon had been three and 10, maybe three, maybe worse on the road in conference games. And we were going to make it a point that we were going to learn how to how to pack our toughness along with our our travel bags. We we're going to pack our 
resiliency. We're going to pack our mentality and take it on the road with us to make sure that when that ball was teed up, that we we're going to play a certain way. We we're going to bring Austin Stadium and our, our Oregon fan base with us um, and play with that kind of juice and energy. So I think the lessons learned are just as valuable um, on both sides, the winning and the losing part. But I also feel that in football, there are some painful steps that you cannot skip. And, and I see our program as a, as a reboot, a restart. And we've rebooted quickly. And knowing that a year like this, after having some success, is when you have to do your most disciplined, uh, your most regimented coaching and teaching to fight human nature, right? There's a lot of Rose Bowl shirts, right? That were handed out and a lot of caps and whatnot. And they all say last year, and that's where it's got to be kept. It's got to be put away. It's got to be stored away in the closet, you know, bring it out, you know, way on down the line when you're retired and gone fishing. But for now, all that stuff has got to be just, it's got to get out. And so everything going forward. Mario, you mentioned some of your mentors in the coaching profession. How much of that do you derive from your time with Nick Saban, who I think is sort of perceived as the ultimate guy in the profession who you accomplished something, but you've still got to keep pushing for more and more and more because it's not about the results. It's about the process to get to it. Well, without a doubt, there's, I learned so many things under coach Saban and I think uh, to be successful. And again, this is my opinion. I don't, I don't, ever proclaim I'm going to write a book anytime soon or any of that stuff, but is you still have to apply it to what you are, who you are and um, your personality. And I love regimen. I love structure. I love hard, tough nose coaching and playing. And so that's why I felt that that going to Alabama was a great fit for me. Okay. And I thought that the off season program there, the fourth quarter program, the way that um, that you're teaching guys to move, how to change direction, uh, developing guys for football specific functional movements was a game changer. I thought the attack on mentality, the approach to the psychological aspect of the football and the training I thought was phenomenal. I thought those things were complete program difference makers and a lot of that stuff we carried over here. Our practice regimen in place that I had been at was similar. Uh, I thought the, the two spotting of drills plus the drill progression to unit progression then onto team progression drills was great. So there's a lot, there's a, there's a heavy influence, a heavy influence uh, from the program and what I had learned under coach uh, over here at the University of Oregon. So Mario, for the first time in, I don't even know. I mean, we're, I mean, we're talking decades. You're at home on a Saturday for like two months watching football if you wanted to like you could be one of us if you chose um are you doing that and what have you I'm hireable taken? man again i told a couple <laughs> you guys know. if you need an intern for a couple of weeks you know I, I got an hour with you on saturday you know you don't want that um what are you doing on saturdays and if you're watching what are you like when you watch on tv are you able to sit back and relax are you tr you've taken things from these games that you've noticed that you're storing away in your mental Rolodex. Right. Well, this Saturday we practice. So, you know, most of our day was eaten up with practice walkthrough meetings. We are on um, at the 20 hour rules. We could use four hours, but we're also getting ahead on our installs on our planning, our regimen, and of course our opponents. Um, but you DVR everything and you go home and, and we get, we did get to watch some games. We, we thought it's been important and very valuable for our players and our coaches to watch games and call games, call situations, uh, without consequence, you know, it's almost like 
like you're playing with house money, you know what I mean? It's uh, but there are the, the lessons aren't valuable. I mean, every, every Sunday we have a cut up from lessons learned over the weekends from you saw yesterday, right? You saw the, the field goal situations were an issue. You've seen special teams come up everywhere and tackling. Um, and it's not being critical. It's just, again, taking advantage of learning while all this is going on. Our guys love college football. I thought it was interesting yesterday. We ended practice and a couple of these games were on coming down to the wire and they're on the monitors in the hallway. And I, I forget which game ended in, uh, I think it was the fourth and one down at the goal line and just a complete eruption downstairs knowing because they're watching. They, they can't wait to get out there. And they also had a chance to, to learn, you know, hey, first and goal at the one yard line on both sides of the ball, what they call, what they do, who played well, who rose up, who folded, who buckled. I mean, a lot, a lot going on, a lot of DVR. You know, my wife's upset. She, she can't record the housewives of whatever city. I got it loaded up with football games, so. Mario, a lot of microscope is going to be on your your quarterback situation this year, just because you you lost such a great player, first round pick. Uh, how do you see that shaping up, and what have you seen the first couple of days of practice? Yeah, I hope the microscope is on him because I think he's gonna. I think whoever it is, because both guys have done really well. I think they both will respond. They're both ahead of the younger guys right now. Not discounting the younger guys, but the truth of the matter is, we went through a pandemic at the beginning of spring practice. Those guys haven't had the time that the other guys have had. Tyler Chuck's been here for two and a half years, done extremely well. He right now is taking the rest of the ones. Anthony Brown has done a great job and has played a lot of football. So he's picked up everything quickly. And you could see it in the way that he practices and his presence that he's the guy that's played a lot of football and doing really well. So we're fired up about our quarterback situation. We feel uh, completely confident that these guys are going to not only I'll run our offense. They're going to be guys that create explosive plays. And we feel great about the young guys. It's just, I almost feel it's unfair to them as of right now from a process, from a time invested standpoint, because we have just literally gotten the opportunity to work with them on the field. And they are talented. And we're still counting them in the competition. They're just a little bit farther behind. So but all in all, with the quarterback position, I see no glitches, no hiccups. I see, I see a couple guys in a talented room with more guys that are going to make this offense go and be really effective. And what position right now then keeps you awake at night? Is it left tackle? Because this seems natural, perhaps, that you'd be worried about a position where you don't have your all-everything dude. Is is there anything up front or anywhere that keeps you awake right now at this point? Well, that left tackle was pretty good. He did a pretty decent. He was okay. He was yeah. fine. He's got, he's, got a, he's got a decent. He might have a chance. To make <laughs> you know, I think um, I just I – I'm just up at night. I just am. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't find myself staying up because of a, a particular position. And the way we structure stuff is we're very like solution oriented. When we see a, a vacancy like that, or maybe a personnel issue on the, on the team, we just we invest times and in, in just finding a, a way to to make it work. Whether it be a player being his time to step up and play whether it be an adjustment of the scheme. I don't, uh, and I don't see either. Uh, I don't see any issue with uh, the departure of our left tackle. I don't see uh, an issue. I know people talk about our offensive line being young. I see some really talented and powerful guys that are coming together nicely and that have done some really amazing things in a short amount of time. And I see them practicing against, in my opinion, 
one of the best defenses in the country on a daily basis. And so when there's back and forth, that makes you feel good. If I saw one side blowing out the other side, I'd be concerned, you know, so I'll make sure that happens. I'll call you and I'll let, I'll let you know. Hey, man, now up at night, there's a problem. I'm actually not, I'm actually not sleeping. Um, <laughs> no, Mar, I want to ask you, um, it's not like a, a tremendous amount of time elapsed between FIU and Oregon, five years, right? Um, nonetheless, I'm, I'm curious if any point within those five years, you wondered what, when my next chance would be, because I think most people would agree that you had earned it. And did you think that it would occur all the way out West, basically the one program that couldn't be farther away from your roots or farther away from your previous head coaching job? Well, I, I always, uh, I think it's funny when I explain to my mom is, you know, she's, she's the best and she's, uh, you know, my background team and whatnot. So I try to put up, I put a map in front of her, explain to her, look, this is where we're from. Okay. You're from here from Cuba and this is Miami and I'm at Oregon. So <laughs> this part of the map over here, that's where I, <laughs> she's like, Whoa, wait a second. That's a long ways away. Uh, no one could have ever expected it, but you know, I think one thing that feels to get mentioned in, in a process is that like our staff at FIU, you think about it, we took over a team that was winless that made a jump to division one football with no stadium, no locker room, uh, putting in a crabgrass field to practice, inherited a five-year probation, lost, I believe, 17 scholarships. Worst APR in America was like 650. Um, gosh, I don't know where it ends. I could keep going. I mean, we sat on a runway for like eight hours one day because our bill wasn't paid. It was, uh, you learn how to cut your teeth because you had to do everything against all odds. And you had to restart a program by playing a couple of easy games like Tim Tebow at Florida and <laughs> Emma and Arkansas when they were ripping it and, and Kansas when they were, you know, the champs of the conference. So, and then all of a sudden, a little over three years later, there's a conference championship. There's, there's actual, you know, primetime games. There's big wins at Louisville. Um, you win a conference, you win the first bowl game ever. Um, and now, I'm not proud of myself. I'm proud of the staff and I'm super proud of those players who, you know, you see these guys on now on Facebook and all this other stuff, the way they communicate. It was an incredible learning. It was an incredible, uh, just cut your teeth, do everything. You're the APR specialist. You're the, the housing director, you name it, director of football ops. And then to go to Alabama for those four years. And now everyone, has uh, a role that takes care of all those things so you could focus strictly on uh, the X's and O's, but without ever losing touch of the personal side. And and that window, I mean, that was incredible. I have 17 notebooks handwritten front to back on every day at the University of Alabama, every meeting, every situation, circumstance, game day, practice, injury, offseason, name it. NFL, uh, the advisory board committee, everything. And then all of a sudden, um, this came up. It just felt right. It felt right. Took, took the, the opportunity that was granted to me, the privilege. And then a year later, um, given the chances to be the head football coach here. So it's been, it's been quite a ride. It's awesome. I, I love it here. I love everything about it. I love the approach of our players, the staff. So I'm just really, really blessed, brother. 
it's a remarkable story and uh you guys open november 7th against stanford should be really phenomenal to watch you play i know it's going to feel great to, to get out on the field mario thanks so much for joining us really appreciate your time and hope we can do it again at some point appreciate you guys have a great one all right thanks mario cristobal on the inside the amway coaches poll podcast inside the amway coaches poll from usa today sports Thanks very much to Mario Cristobal, Oregon head coach, defending Pac-12 champion. Certainly, if this were a normal season, Oregon would have been one of those teams in heavily in contention for the college football playoff. They still might be, but the Pac-12 is obviously going to be up against it, only playing seven games. But we'll see. Maybe they can make a push to get in. All right, let's uh, turn our attention to next week and – Obviously, there is one game that towers above the rest. And just watching these two teams play on Saturday, the contrast could not be more clear. And when you talk about Georgia going to Alabama, I made this comment last night. I got roasted for it on Twitter. I kind of think Georgia should be the favorite in this game. Yeah, you said what, a field goal? In yeah, Tuscaloosa. like a couple, a couple points, a couple point favorite. I, I, I was disabused of that notion by the experts. I am not a gambling expert, okay? The experts <laughs> told me, no, you're wrong. Alabama is going to be a six or seven point favorite. I trust their word. I'm just saying if I were making the lines based on what I've seen, I think Georgia's been better. Well, Georgia in the second half, as we talked about, was that's like pretty – much a picture perfect representation of what Georgia can be. Um, and if that team shows up, yeah, I mean, Alabama's in for a dogfight. I just, you know, even that defense, can you stop Alabama enough to give your own offense a shot to keep pace? I don't really know about that. I don't know what you think, but Alabama's offense, despite all the uh, issues on defense, seems to be so dynamic and explosive. I'm not sure if even a Georgia team that can really rush the passer can stop it. Well, that's so what that's I was going to say. That's what I was going to say is Georgia's ability to create pressure. I mean, obviously, Alabama's going to put up points. You're not going to stop that team's offense completely. But just the ability of Georgia to, to create havoc up front and to pressure Mac Jones, I do think they can get some mistakes, some turnovers perhaps, and, and be disruptive in, in a way that, that nobody else in the country right now really seems capable of. So let's say it's a, it's a wash in terms of turnovers. I mean, neither team commits any, let's say. So it's nearly a flawless game in terms of protecting the ball. Um, if you're in that situation where it's basically toe-to-toe and you don't have any edge, you still think Georgia can beat Alabama? Or is the win contingent on, hey, we need Mac Jones to throw a pick or we need plus two turnovers, which is possible, like you said, because they can get after the quarterback? Yeah, I mean, look, I think they're going to need some turnovers. But I also think just watching Alabama playing against Ole Miss – they're going to give up points too. Even though Georgia may get a little bit uh, nicked for their offense and, and people may say Stetson Bennett is not good enough, this is a pretty pedestrian Alabama defense. And Georgia is going to be able to make some plays. And I do think that, that the game is going to – it's going to offer opportunities uh, for, for Georgia. And, and whether or not there's a turnover, I think they'll be able to score enough to hang in there. So uh, – I think Georgia just physically is as good as Alabama. And I think when you are able to say that, and they're one of the few programs that can say that, period, then why wouldn't you have a chance? Why wouldn't you have a really good chance to win that game? 
Yeah. So what's the, what's the fallout for a loss? I mean, obviously both these teams are still in contention, but um, if George Alabama lose, it's just a matter of running the table from this point forward. They're clearly not eliminated, right? Well, aren't we expecting that no matter what happens in this game, that there will be a rematch in Atlanta on December 19th? Yeah, I guess the only thing that would change that is if Alabama wins by 28. And all of a sudden you think, oh, okay, well, Georgia, Florida seems a little bit more interesting right now. Um, but yeah, at this point, obviously, you're, that's the assumption. So then it's basically the first of, it could be the first of three matchups this season between yeah. these two teams. Yeah, that's obviously projecting out a lot of results between now and then. But sure, if this game is competitive and the SEC championship game is competitive, then I do think that from a playoff standpoint, you you have to consider both of them for sure. But that neither team would be docked too many points in the committee's mind if if they look like reasonably equal teams. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a super interesting matchup. I, you know, obviously there's a lot of um, there's going to be attention and rightfully so on keeping Mac Jones upright and and that battle against Georgia's defensive front, you know, front four, front seven. I like the matchups in the in the secondary because I think Alabama's receiver core can obviously fly. Georgia's got a lot of speed, I think, in the secondary, um, like guys who can the count who can really get after the football and, and have a great closing speed. So this is the kind of matchup that. Uh, you circle in August or, you know, September for a reason, you know, and I think it's going to live up to expectations. I hope at least the, the ability is there for this game to be as good as advertised. Well, the other thing too, is what does Alabama do this week, right? Their defense got exposed by Ole Miss. And I know that that's not going to sit well. And it's not just a scheme thing. There was talk that didn't Ole Miss have their signals and all that stuff, but they also just missed a lot of tackles, you know, they, they, I think there were some guys who, you know, maybe tried to do it a little too much individually on defense and that got them in, in some trouble. So, what does Saban do this week to, to fix that? Can he fix that? And, you know, does it, I mean, look, I, I the, the story about Alabama's coaching turnover is one that, has been talked about ad nauseum over the years, but it's just very clear that Pete Golding is, is not Kirby smart. He's not Jeremy Pruitt. He's just not. And does that leave Alabama vulnerable in, in ways that, that maybe we don't give them enough credit for? Yeah, it's a great question. I, if look like I'm going to try to be Nick Saban, it's probably not a great idea. I would think, or like maybe I would assume that, they would dial things back a bit and, and simplify. Um, and the other thing is like, and that's just in terms of X's and O's, the stuff about playing the ball and not the man and going for a pick and leading to an 80 something yard touchdown, like those kind of mental teaching moments, obviously they need to address because it's not, it's not good enough that I mean, a play like that can cost you a national championship. So I feel like he can fix those things, but in terms of getting the defense back into alignment, I would just make things simpler. And the good news is that you probably have an opportunity because Georgia is not nearly as exotic as Ole Miss offensively. They, they have been fairly vanilla, but that's all they've needed to be. And at the same time, I, I do sort of wonder if Georgia has been saving some stuff for this game. I mean, this game's, yeah. if they knew this game was coming 
And I think if you're in the minds of the Georgia coaching staff, obviously you respect Auburn, you respect Tennessee. Those programs have talent, but those are both home games. And and you know that the one that is really going to count is, is this one. So I'll be interested to see if, if they've got some, some things up their sleeve for Nick Saban. All right, let's uh, move on to maybe the second most interesting game of the week. I don't know if – let's just say this. It's a pretty big drop-off, right, between uh, <laughs> Alabama, Georgia, and and the second best game. But uh, for LSU, this is kind of a five-alarm fire going on right now, and they've got to go to Florida. This has been a rivalry in the SEC. It is often uh, dramatic off the field. It has been a defining game, good and bad, for LSU in recent years. And here they are, one and two. Their defense under Bo Pelini has been in shambles. And they got to go play a Florida team that seems to score on just about every possession, at least a very high percentage of them. And Florida's coming off a a loss that, uh, frankly, shouldn't have happened at A&M. But even Ed Orgeron coming out of the game Saturday was like, look, I, I, Bo Pelini's a great defensive coordinator. He's going to be great here. Love him to death. He's, been, he's, he's done it before. But some things have got to change. Um, schematically, when, when the head coach starts criticizing the scheme, as Orgeron kind of did, uh, this, is, this is back to the wall stuff. Yeah, typically when Ed Orgeron criticizes the scheme, it means he's about to take your job over. Um, we can ask Matt Canada about that. Um, <laughs> right. So I don't think that, I mean, in all seriousness, that's not going to happen with Bellini. But yeah, uh, that's the kind of things you don't want to hear as an assistant coach three games into your tenure. Um, Florida, just based off like the just proportional success, like if Mississippi State and Missouri are going to drop 40 on LSU, it seems logical that Florida can do the same, if not a little bit more, because Florida is is better offensively than both of those teams. I mean, a lot better. So, um, yeah, LSU needs a win here because a loss sets up really like a – I'm trying to think the worst follow-up to a national championship ever. Is there a season that I should be thinking of specifically? Has a national champion ever just been truly horrific the following season? Trying to think. No, the Auburn team that lost Cam Newton came back the next year and they were like eight and five, right? Five. They won the Peach Bowl or played in the Peach Bowl, something like that. Yeah, that that's yeah, okay. Well that's pretty bad. But again, that that was a Auburn team that was ninety two percent Cam Newton. So you lose Cam, that seems reasonable. This is I think this is a little bit different because if they lose this game it it's like all the things you've read in the last 24 hours of, oh, they're one and two and haven't even played their hard games yet. The Florida, Alabama's, you know, all those matchups. Um, if they lose this one on Saturday and they give up 45 again, then yeah, I mean, you can start thinking about LSU going three and seven or four and six. In either case, that's a disaster of a, of a bounce back um, after a national championship. But that really shouldn't happen. I mean, there's no excuse for it. No, it shouldn't happen, but – you can also understand how it's happened. For uh, sure, yeah. At the same time, they gave Bo Pelini a three-year deal at like $2.5 million a year, $2.3 million a year. And 
that's not looking like such a great decision. Bo Pelini was a great defensive coordinator at one point, but so was John Chavis. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things change. Yeah. I mean, it's been 13 seasons since he won that title at LSU. And yeah, like you said, a lot has changed in college football in 13 years. Also, there's no Glenn Dorsey on this LSU team. Um, the pieces just aren't there. So like you said, we know how this is happening. Um, it's happening because you lost 40 people and you lost both your coordinators and you're rebuilding. I still don't think that it should be happening. Like it shouldn't be your LSU. You build up to 15 and 0. There's no reason why under almost any conditions, you should go from 15 and 0 to sub 500. We have uh, two matchups of unbeaten teams this week besides Georgia, Alabama. One of them is Wednesday, Coastal Carolina at Louisiana, (laughs) the Raging Cajuns. I don't know that we really want to break that game down, but uh, that'll be good Wednesday midweek viewing for college football fans. But the one Friday will be really good. BYU 4-0 at Houston. Houston got their season going finally. They had all those COVID issues, and then teams canceled on them, and it was just they tried to reschedule. Just whatever whatever they tried didn't work. They finally get on the field last week. They beat Tulane after a pretty shaky start to the game, and they actually looked quite good the second half of that game. BYU at Houston, who you got? Um, I got BYU, but look, like uh, we should say about Houston, they beat Tulane and scored a whole bunch of points that were minus five in the turnover margin. That's an incredible achievement um, to do <laughs> Hard that. Hard to do. Yeah. So uh, this is obviously BYU's toughest test um, to date, I think. Navy is fine, but Houston's a different sort of breed. Um but BYU, I think, is really good. And it's hard to tell because, like I said, the competition hasn't been great. But this kid, Zach Wilson, at QB, is getting a lot of love um, in terms of being an NFL talent. Um, I think their offense has found a – I mean, by finding a quarterback, I think they found an identity. Um, Houston, like, you know how Houston kind of threw last season with the efforts of, of building towards a better 2020 and 2021? I mean – Maybe that's accurate, and maybe they beat BYU and they have a case for being in that top four in the American. It just seems a little bit quick for Houston to spend five weeks on the sidelines, bounce back, and beat BYU at this juncture. So I'm going to go with BYU by maybe 10 points, seven to 10 points. The ABC primetime game is Oklahoma State at Baylor. As you start to look at the shape of the Big 12, we talked earlier just about that mess of a Red River shootout game is you start to just really evaluate these teams. Iowa State's played well, but you know, it's Iowa State. Kansas State's played well, but you know, they don't really have overwhelming talent. And then you just start to really think about who is going to come out of that league. And more and more stuff seems to be pointing toward Oklahoma State, at least based on, process of elimination and the fact that they looked good against Kansas. This will be their first game where I think we'll get a better sense of Oklahoma state, but what do you think of them right now as a big 12 title contender? Yeah, they're, they're legitimate. I mean, also do the circumstances of Texas and OU being such trash, but yeah, they're legitimate. I, I think you want to see Spencer Sanders back at QB for Oklahoma state to get a really clear picture of what they're going to be about. Um, they haven't really had him since the first early going of the opener. 
So if they can get him back and healthy, then I you'll see the offense at you know 100. In which case, might be the best offense in the conference. Um, yeah, right now, like you know, there are three unbeaten teams in conference play: Oklahoma State, Kansas State, Iowa State. Um, at this point, I put Iowa State number one, Oklahoma State two, Kansas State three. That would be my order. But again, like Kansas State their coaching is so good that they find a way to win with a freshman QB at TCU by a touchdown. So I don't count them out, but I would put Iowa state as a favorite at this point. As far as uh, other games, it's, it's one of those weekends where there's really not a lot of tremendous matchups, but there are some sort of interesting mid-level games, Kentucky at Tennessee, uh, Tennessee's got to recover from that beat down against Georgia. Um, you know, you've got uh, Texas A&M, got a big win in the bank against Florida. They go to Mississippi State, who's frankly just not looked very good. Ole Miss and Arkansas, a pair of one and two teams that are, are fairly promising. UCF at Memphis, which um, maybe seemed like a marquee game when ABC picked it up for the 330 slot, but now has lost a little bit of luster. Um, just not a whole lot there this week. No, not really, but this is the weekend when things get wild. Um, that UCF Memphis game, like you said, that that was going to be a big one. Um, and even if Memphis had still, you know, had still had that one loss, this still would have been a huge game for UCF if they had beaten Tulsa. So, um, you know, like you said, it's still like midday. You'll get some eyeballs, but it doesn't carry the same level of importance. Um, in the like later on, UNC at Florida State. Any interest in that? I'd like to see Florida State. I, I like to see North Carolina, like show me 60 minutes of football because, you know, they're not, they have moments where they, they kind of black out. So yeah, that's what i be looking for in that game. They've been inconsistent and, and Florida state, uh, they seem like they were making baby steps. You know, they, they put in a reputable effort against Notre Dame. If not for the fact that they wear Florida state uniforms, if they were just any other team, we'd have looked at that game and said, yeah, you know, look, they, 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 they were okay. You know, they, they have made progress from where they were in week one. And I think they have made progress, but because it's Florida state and the brand and the expectations, it maybe is not generating much positive commentary. Uh, but if they continue to make strides that they could, they could pose some problems for, for UNC. So this is the last Saturday before you get the Big Ten back. Um, they come back on the 24th. Um, which conference gets hurt the most by that ACC? Is it the, like the last weekend for the ACC to kind of play alone and stand alone before the Big Ten comes in and, and steals headlines? Well, certainly the ACC, those mid-level teams who typically kind of just get lost in the shuffle uh, behind Clemson are going to uh, – probably fade a little bit into the background because we are going to be so intrigued by what the big 10 looks like. And we're going to be watching, I think a lot of those games going forward, at least early on. And, and look, it's just, it's interesting. It's like right now we've got some teams that have finished. It's like a golf tournament, right? They've, they finished 36 holes and we know where they stand through 36 holes. And yet here's Ohio state in the clubhouse, they still haven't even started yet, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they, they like in Ohio state, they kind of know what the competition is, is doing and looking like. And that is a little bit of an advantage. I think you, you know, it's a, it's a probably a terrible 
analogy, but it's like, you know, the, the score that you've got to put up to, to be in the mix. Yeah. I think Ohio state, um, if I had to guess has been watching and kind of salivating because the level of football has not been fantastic so far. So for a team that obviously thinks they can win it all. Um, and that's why they're playing right now. Um, I could see them watching some ACC or even some SEC teams on Saturdays and thinking, Oh, this is gettable. This is doable. Yeah. I think you'd have to look at the defenses that are out there aside from Georgia. If you're Justin Fields, you're Ryan day, you're probably looking at it thinking we can score on anybody. Um, and that's a good place. Probably to can. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap the show there. We will be back next week to bring you more of the inside the Amway coaches poll podcast presented by USA today sports. Thanks very much to Mario Cristobal for coming on, talking to us for Paul Meyerberg. I am Dan Wolkin. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Inside the Amway Coaches Poll from USA Today Sports. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Hi, I'm Nick, XS Brand Ambassador. The most popular workout supplement has traditionally been protein powder, used to build muscle and recover from workouts. Athletes, strength competitors, bodybuilders, and everyday fitness enthusiasts all use protein powder to reach their goals. Each of these groups have different needs, but there are many commonalities. To be effective, a protein powder needs to deliver at least 10 grams of protein, commonly from whey, casein, egg, or plant-based protein, plus some combination of essential amino acids. Whey protein is the most common because it is the most effective and easily assimilated in the body. No matter what your activity level, protein is key in anyone's diet. 20 grams of protein per serving is optimal for most people. Excess Protein Pods Protein Powder is a new delivery system to allow you to take the optimal 20 grams of whey protein isolate and 4.4 grams of branch chain amino acids or BCAAs with you wherever you go. These pods deliver high quality protein powder packed inside a dissolvable food grade film. You can easily drop into a shaker cup and go. No more struggling with the inconvenience of carrying tubs and the mix, measuring and mess of traditional protein powders. Excess protein pods are simply the best way to get your daily protein intake. For more information, go to amway.com and search protein pods. Excess energy drinks and sports nutrition exclusively from Amway.